Hi, I'm Gabriel Stellion Shanks, the Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City. Welcome. This week, we're in conversation. This is our ongoing series of discussions with some of the most influential stage directors working today. For video episodes, just visit dramaleague.org and click on Digital Series. Or for podcast episodes, simply search for The Drama League wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to like and subscribe. The Drama League is a not-for-profit home for stage directors and the audiences who enjoy their work on stage, in films, in television, and across the internet. During the pandemic, we're providing essential services to help directors and their families who are suffering economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in that effort, please visit dramaleague.org and click donate or become a member. We'd love to have you as part of the Drama League family. Thank you for listening. And now, enjoy being in conversation. Hi, I'm Gabriel Stelion Shanks, the Artistic Director of the Drama League, and welcome to another episode of In Conversation. I am so excited to talk today to one of my favorite theater artists in the entire country and to share with you what I think is a pretty specific and interesting path for the evolution of where theater's going to go and what we can all take as artists and as audiences into the future. Please welcome my friend, my buddy, Travis Lee Russ. Hi, Travis. Hello. Wow. What an amazing introduction. I'm so flattered. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad you are. Um, for our listeners who may not know you or the work of your company, I'm going to just hit some high points in your bio uh, before we get started. Um, if you are not familiar with Travis Lee Russ, he is the artistic director of Life Jacket Theater Company here in New York. He is a director and writer and dramaturg. Um, he has had over his career a number of triumphs in the area of documentary theater. And specifically, I think the language that Travis uses is investigative documentary theater. Right. Many of you know America is Hard to See, which I was thrilled at the Drama League to help support. Uh, it was named as one of the top 10 plays of the year by New Now Next and sold out runs at Here Art Center and the Edinburgh Fringe, where it won awards, as well as uh, Gory, The Secret Lives of Edward Gory, which put, I think, Life Jacket on a lot of people's radar when it received sure. a Drama Desk nomination. Um, and we'll be talking about the upcoming world premiere of The Gorgeous Nothings in 2021. Uh, Travis was nominated for three New York Innovative Theater Awards. Uh, he is currently a director in residence with us right here at the Drama League. Um, he's received numerous grants and awards and in, I don't know if we think of Travis as a superhero by day, <laughs> he is the associate Dean and, and associate professor of graduate studies at Fordham university. Um, Travis, uh, with a resume like that, it's hard to know where to start, but I think what I'm most interested in talking to you about is your approach to theater making, um, as a director and as a writer and as a dramaturg, even those descriptions seem a, to fall a little short for me, um, because you do an enormous amount of research into real lives. Uh, and with Life Jacket, you tell what you call undertold stories, not untold stories, but undertold. Mm -hmm. What got you interested in storytelling in this way? 
Yeah, gosh, it's it's funny as you were talking about my background, I was like, wow, that's I'm kind of all over the map. But I would think I kind of think I'm all over the map as a theater artist. Uh, I'm not big on silos. I'm not big on these are your predefined or prescriptive roles. And I I am really interested in making theater where I can cross many boundaries and blur many lines. So I love to work on the script and I love to direct and I even love to produce and I even love marketing. Um, so I'm really fascinated fascinated with 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 converging different roles and that goes for theater artists as well. People I bring into the room, they don't ever believe me when I tell them. I'm going to ask for your opinion about the script and it's going to be a sincere ask. Uh, and again, they don't believe me the first time, but then the the 20th or 30th time or 40th time I ask them their ideas for the script or even blocking. Um, I call it structured collaboration where we'll come into a room and I'll have an idea for a scene and we'll try it many different ways. Uh, and, and I think that excites them as artists. And that's who I look for during the audition process. Somebody who's game and brings great ideas into the room, not just from an acting perspective, but perhaps from a design perspective. And that goes for my designers too. I want them to be engaged in the process fully. So somebody who's designing the lights isn't just designing the light plot. They're actually giving me notes on uh, narrative. They're giving me notes on whether or not uh, blocking makes sense or uh, the the structure of a scene makes sense. Um, so that's that's what I mean by uh, structured collaboration. You asked about undertold stories. Um, I use that phrase specifically because every story is told to some degree. Whether or not we hear about it is a completely different story. And who gets to tell that story as that, that expression goes? Um, I'm really fascinated with the underdog. I really love finding somebody who existed in our past and shedding new light on them and telling their stories in a very theatrical way. I think it starts from my past academic experience in performance studies. That's what I got my undergraduate degree in, where you unpack and you analyze a topic from many different perspectives and you pull in different types of literature to tell a theatrical journey. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated with people who live on the edge, who live on the outskirts of society, either by force or by choice, and using the art of investigative theater and some people call it device theater. Again, I call it structured collaboration to, to tell those fringe stories on a stage in an exciting theatrical way, if that makes any sense at all. It does. And I've, I've had the pleasure of talking to some of your collaborators, and they speak of the not only the generosity that you bring to that relationship, but the sheer amount of raw material that goes into your structured collaboration process. Um, you do a lot of verbatim interviews, sometimes for years before you start working, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and people think I'm crazy because you have to come up with a really rigid organizational pattern. And they think I'm insane because I'm deathly afraid of losing a piece, a scrap, of text. And so I have this whole organizational system for every single show I do, because you never know when you need that line or you need that word or you need that phrase to pull into a scene. But yeah, 
yeah it it's it takes a long time and it's it's a um very inefficient way to make theater <laughs> well for the people who are listening who may not have had the pleasure of seeing your work maybe we could talk about a few of your pieces and you could let us know how they came to be i remember the the experience of gory um which was a piece exploring the um sort of uh i don't know mysteries surrounding the artist edward gory and you ended up with a piece where three actors simultaneously played gory Mm-hmm. Um, how did that idea come to you? And then how did you research that idea and move it into a, uh, how did it become a play? Yeah. So I, uh, went to visit Edward Gorey's house, which is now a museum. So you can wander through his house and it's now decluttered. He, he was, he was a hoarder, uh, and he, uh, was a very famous artist who did very delicate pen and ink drawings. And one day he decided to move to New York and move uh, to Cape Cod and really shut up the world. And I was fascinated with what would cause somebody who was really a staple in cultural life in New York City uh, to just cut off uh, his lifeline to the theater world, to the ballet world, to the art world, and lock himself away uh, in Cape Cod and and collect things and cats. Um, And when I went through the museum, it wasn't that I I said, oh, somebody should write a play about him. And then several years later, I was like, oh, that someone has to be me because he kept haunting me. And that's usually how I choose to write a play, that the ideas stick with me for years. Um, It it happened with America's Hard to See, where like, there's no way I'm writing a play about uh, sex offenders who are... Uh, exiled away in the middle of a cornfield in Southern Florida. And there's probably, I'm not, I don't know how interested I am in writing a story about gay men in prison in the 1930s for the new show, The Gorgeous Nothings, but they stick with me. They really, really haunt me for years. And that's what happened with Gory. It actually started out as a boring theatrical idea where it was going to be just a one-person show based on Edward Gorey's letters that he left behind and his diary entries. And then as we were doing readings, again, I, I had this open collaboration process or the structured collaboration process where the people I brought in the room were like, these are different voices because it's true. I was pulling material from Gory's life from his 20s to his 30s and 40s to his 60s and 70s. And as human beings, we are different people uh, uh, throughout the decades. And right. so, and it was almost like he was he truly was a different person when he was 20 versus when he was 70 uh, shortly before his death. And I thought, why not uh, have them converse with each other? And this is around the same time that uh, Fun Home was happening, but uh, I certainly had the idea before I saw Fun Home because it, you know, that, 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 that strategy of, of having different actors play the same role simultaneously. Uh, of course, Edward Albee did it geniusly in Three Tall Women, and it's been used a, a variety of times. But it really is something that theater can do that TV and film really can't, because uh, it would just look odd uh, on, on, on the screen. But in theater, we just believe it, that three actors can sim- simultaneously play the same person 
and be engaged with each other's lives as if they're talking to their best friend versus their their uh, nemesis, so to speak. Um, and then the challenge was, how do you make it interesting to watch somebody who was uh, who wanted to lock themselves away from the world, who um, became a hermit essentially? And I love that challenge uh, because, uh, again, I love trying to find people who perhaps may seem inaccessible, making them accessible to an to a modern audience. That's what I find thrilling. To to me, the the use of the actors at different stages of Gory's life gave it a theatrical movement that maybe his actual life did not have. Mm-hmm. You know that that uh, by shutting himself away. Um, it, it came very alive in this piece. And then the other, you know, you mentioned Fun Home and you mentioned Three Tall Women, and I certainly see the parallels in sort of the structuring of of telling one person's tale through multiple actors. But whereas I think, you know, Three Tall Women is an invention and um, Fun Home is is based on a memoir, this felt so deeply researched. There was so... It, it just felt like it kept giving and giving. Um, and then when the next piece I encountered of yours, which is America's Hard to See, which uh, I just want to give a shout out after the pandemic is coming to London. And I just want to congratulate you on that success. And, and for a piece that really feels to me in some ways, maybe unintentional um, to be a piece for our time about our country and who we hide and who we lift up. Um, what struck me after Gory and that is is that you went from sort of, I don't know, a, a, a archaeological dig on, on Edward Gory to actually interviewing people in this tiny Florida town. And they were so alive in the moment. Um, tell us a little bit about, you, you said you weren't sure if you wanted to tell this story. Um, how did you end up coming to tell it? Sure. And, and Gabriel, I just want to um, acknowledge, I really appreciate that you've given my work such deep thought and analyses. Uh, <laughs> your, your... I'm, a, I'm a fan. Oh, I'm a, I, in addition to being a colleague, I'm a fan. Oh, thank you. That, that, that really does mean a lot. Um, I feel very flattered. Um, and you're picking up on some wonderful nuances that uh, I hope people get, but I, 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 you don't always know if, if it lands. Um, you're right, Gory. I wanted to take truly a left turn after Gory where Gory was uh, 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 about uh, an artist who who is known. I mean, he had fans. People came out of the woodwork to come see that show. Um, people who would go to the ballet with him came to see the show and who were in the ballets that he, he would see. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was really fascinating because they had stories about the stories that were in the play. Uh, and some of those actually made it into the play. Uh, and... Uh, uh, yeah, we had some people who he had, he loved this very obscure ballet that that Balanchine choreographed, and some of those performers actually came to the opening night off Broadway, um, and some of the recollections about some things that were 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 not included in the the, the terrible press reviews were actually cl- included in the script, um, and and that show really relied heavily on projections and very uh, dramatic lighting. Uh, puppetry was involved. I wanted to strip all of that away and use a completely different form for the next show. And it sounds like torture, um, but again, I really love 
uh, stretching my skill set as a playwright and a director and a theater maker. Well, I chose a topic that that really was going to challenge the level of empathy an audience would be able to demonstrate during a theatrical piece of work. Um, initially, we, I pulled a group together. I really did want to go to a small community, very much in the tradition of um, Tectonic Theater Project um, and, uh, and, and even Brecht um, and even Carol Churchill, who would go to communities, speak to people, and then write a play about those individuals. Um, and when I, I pulled a group of researchers together, field researchers together, we, we were brainstorming some topics and we very much were interested in the idea of outsiders. And I thought, well, who, who's the most extreme outsider in America? And it's, it's a pedophile, a, a, a sex offender. And I was doing a little bit of research about where in America uh, do we exile sex offenders in this little village called Miracle Village in Southern Florida popped up. And again, I have this fight or flight mentality as a theater market maker where I'm like, there is, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm running away from that topic. I, I don't feel comfortable talking about that topic. But then there's that really um, obscure, um, probably not helpful yet helpful urge I have as a theater maker where it's like, no, that's the dangerous choice. That's the choice that that topic is, is uncomfortable for you and is going to stretch you and is going to make you a better artist. And you may fail. <laughs> of course, I, I don't know of a lot of theater makers who, who, who enjoy failure, but the risk of failure is quite enticing because it also means there's the risk of success and the chance of success. And it's, it's a very thin line between those two outcomes. So I was like, let's give it a shot. Um, there were a very, there are a few short documentaries about this, this village. So I could sort of meet the, the people who are going to be in my play before I actually met them. So I knew that there was something there, there, um, a, 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 a woman who became a pastor and really worked with this community, uh, much to the chagrin of her current congregation that sits right up a few miles away from this village caused a lot of conflict because she wanted to bring these, these sex offenders into her established church. Um, some of the men in the mini documentary uh, really pulled at my heartstrings and made me question my religious beliefs, my feelings about grace and forgiveness and social justice. And then we wove in a, a number of hymns and original songs based on the transcripts from our interviews. And once you lay on hymns, when, you talk, when you're talking about sex offenders and forgiveness, it really complicates things to me in a very exciting, rich, multi-layered way. So I had very complicated feelings about that, Joe. I still do. Uh, and a lot of reviewers got it and they knew where we were coming from and some people just couldn't separate even audience members couldn't separate the topic from the theater piece and i think that's okay i think that's what good art should do it should make people feel complicated feelings it should make them think and it should also make them feel and hopefully we did all three in that show well and i 
I think for those of us who are in the practice of creating theater, what was really astonishing for me as I sat in the audience of America's Hard to See, and, and we were with you as you developed the piece, so I, I knew what was coming, but I wasn't expecting to have um, the very active theater making challenged in such interesting ways. That the idea of telling the story of real human beings in a documentary or in the theater or in any way that an artist it does is to look at their humanity. And so I found myself, just like you said, being a little seduced by these men and their interviews and um, their need to figure out a way to move forward. Um, what was so beautiful is that you brought the question of, of the despicable acts that they have done and the idea of, of forgiveness versus um, suffering right into our conversation. Um, and so every time we started to sentimentalize and, and uh, you know, you brought us back to what got these people in this predicament in the first place. And I found that balance to be so exciting. This wasn't a story of redemption. This wasn't a rags to riches tale. It, it fit none of my theatrical cliches. Um, it, it exposed me to a community of people I didn't know and then never lost its complexity. And I think... Um, any practice of investigative theater, documentary theater, um, is uniquely positioned to live in the complexities. You, do you understand what I mean? Um, I thought it was really gorgeous in the way you didn't tell us how to feel about these people. Um, yeah, I, I think that's what good plays do, whether it's investigative theater or if it's it's completely invented where I want to feel, I want to have complicated feelings about the characters in the show that I'm watching, just like I have probably very complicated feelings about the people in my life. Um, uh, there's that great Nietzsche quote, says that the, the brighter the light, the darker the shadows, uh, where there's always, there's always joy and there's always sadness. And I think you have to have both. If I had over-romanticized uh, these characters it just wouldn't work right the same is true if i over demonized them it would be boring because that's we sort of already know that that behavior is bad it's a crime it's a terrible terrible uh, act of violence against uh, a human being that these these people perpetuated and the audience is already there i don't want the i don't want to get it i i don't want the audience to get ahead of me so i thought it was an interesting challenge to see if, as a theater maker, and it was my journey as a researcher, I actually really developed a bond with almost everyone I interviewed, simply because they're, they're, they are human beings. And unfortunately, that actually, the, the character trait of them being friendly and outgoing and gregarious is actually what got them into trouble too. And they're obviously they're bad decision making. Right. Where right. they were able they were able to be to befriend their victim and um, uh, engender trust with their victim. And there were moments where I I was like, Am I being played? Am am are am I being seduced as as an interviewer? Uh, and I wanted the audience to go on that very 
uncomfortable journey with me. Right. That, I mean, you put that uncertainty right on the middle of the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I know that you say all good theater can do this, but I also think, you know, in The Crucible, nobody, uh, Arthur Miller does not let us decide that Abigail is right and everyone's a witch, you know? <laughs> you know, it, it, there is a point of view of who we should take sides with and who we should empathize with. Um, you know, I think there, there's, a, a, you know, in Death of a Salesman, no one believes you know, Willie Loman had it coming, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, that whereas you're talking about real people and you are using their own words and using their own experiences. And that to me demands um, a very careful construction that you seem to do in spades. It's, it's when, when, when you are surprised that I have thought about your work this way, this is what excites me about it, oh. uh, is that you really are doing something that I think other kinds of plays, other fictions, other playwriting does not do, um, where those are stories that are uh, pointing us to a place. You simply say, let me show you the multiplicity of, of facets to human beings. And then you let us figure out the messiness of it. Yeah. Um, it was really lovely piece. I, I hope it comes back to New York. I, I, um, I am an enormous fan. If you get a chance or if you visit the Life Jacket Theater website, um, please explore this piece. It's, it's really marvelous. Um, all of which uh, is, I'm going to use this as a moment to switch to your new piece because I am equally excited by the gorgeous nothings. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what you're working on? Sure. Um, I just have a really quick story to tell about um, the, the last thing you said about uh, uh, unearthing the complexities. And I think it links to the next show. Oh, great. We were doing an early showing, like really raw uh, of the the sort of the first um the, the the first chunk of the show and it was with edu- in front of educators theater educators and at the end um one person raised that we did a talk back at, afterwards and and somebody asked what do you want what do you want what are you trying to make me feel and it that question sort of took me aback because what are you feeling whatever you're <laughs> feeling is the right feeling like and i exactly un- Exactly. Um, you know, I am crafting a journey. I do want the audience to go on this journey with me, but it should never just be one feeling. It should be many feelings simultaneously. And for me, that's what that is what great art does, and that's what I I strive to accomplish. Uh, so I just thought it was on what do you what are you trying to make me feel? Uh, I'm not trying to make you feel anything. I'm I'm trying to in, have you engage with the material engage with the characters and and feel empathy i guess maybe that would be the right answer um yeah so that, that's the um that's what brings us to the next show if for some reason uh social justice seems to carry over into this show the show as well and the the question about uh right and wrong and and how we treat outsiders um and definitely linked to the legal system but in a very different light uh, it takes place in the 1930s uh, in New York City and uh, is tied or anchored to a prison that used to exist, no longer exists, although New York City has many prisons still. 
that it, this prison used to be on an island next to Manhattan that is now called Roosevelt Island. It was called Welfare Island at the at the time. And this prison was for really anybody who was caught doing something wrong. But what I'm fascinated with is there was a very special wing that held about 75 individuals at a time. Um, at the time, they were identified as men. But we would now know that these individuals were uh, queer. And what I mean by that is gay men, bisexual men, uh, trans women. Uh, so they were arrested in New York City. They were brought to this special wing in, in this prison. And they were kind of given a, a great deal of freedom where they were able to dress up at night. They, if they had contraband, uh, they would be able to use it, whether it was makeup or wigs or high heels. They would put on a folly for the rest of the prison called uh, fag, the fag folly, which uh, is an interesting term. I don't know if they created, the prisoners created that or the prison officials created that term. Um, so they were sort of put on display. Uh, what sort of the the uh, theatrical frame of the show is definitely music from that time period, the 1920s and 30s, but also a researcher was allowed to come in and investigate the uh, prisoners in the fag ward, as they called it. And and a number of books were written about these prisoners where they would come in, they would do a lot of psychological tests, they would capture the histories of the prisoners, and they would uh, often do physical tests on the prisoners as well. We have a lot of those files. We've tracked the uh, journeys of seven different individuals who made their way through Welfare Island. And this play puts them together at one point in time, tells each of their journeys, which are actually very complicated. It's not, oh, I was, uh, uh, some are very simple where I was caught with my boyfriend having relations to some very complicated stories. Uh, a, a number of sex workers are involved uh, and really shows the diversity of New York City especially the queer community in New York City in the 1930s. That's what I'm really fascinated about. And again, the goal is to complicate the narrative about queer history. Where we think, ah, oh, queer history didn't happen until Stonewall. Well, there were queer people since the beginning of time. Um, and queer people in New York City led very dynamic exciting and sometimes very dangerous lives, again, either by choice or by force in New York City in the 1920s and 30s. My goal is to unpack those stories and show the cohesive community that, that existed at the time and unfortunately were imprisoned uh, and, and quarantined in this special wing because they thought that being queer was contagious and they were trying to contain it. So there's a lot going on in that play. I really want to encourage everyone to go to the Life Jacket website. There's this beautiful photo archive that you and your team have put together of queer people from this period. And there's an enormous array of research that you've been compiling. It looks like you've got a team of about 30 researchers working with you on finding material for this piece. Yeah, it sort of ebbs and flows. And I a special shout out to um, our R&D team. Many of them have devoted hours of their time and energy to going down to the municipal archives in downtown Manhattan, which, oh my gosh, if you have not been there, it's amazing. I mean, anybody who loves research has to take a trip there. Uh, a lot of it's organized. A lot of it isn't. So it is a scavenger hunt. 
uh, and spending time up in uh, Albany at the New York State Library. Uh, yeah, and that what you're seeing on the website is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we truly are talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of documents that we are weaving together. And it is interesting. Um, I mean, even today in the queer community, it's funny how small it is, how many people there are, but so-and-so knows so-and-so. And even in the 30s, they kept a very heavy footprint. And so we're able to track people from cradle to grave. And so time moves forwards and backwards in this play. And that's what's exciting to me is that the story is not just told within the four walls of the prison, but actually goes backwards in time and brings us to a rent party in Harlem. It takes us to a uh, an apartment in a tenement museum, or tenement museum, uh, a, tenant, a room in a tenement house um, of uh, a Jewish tailor and his wife and five children who would occasionally go to the bathhouse uh, and unfortunately got caught at a queer bathhouse. So a wide range of stories that not only tell queer history, but tell the history of New York City uh, during the early 1930s. You mentioned earlier that you thought music was going to play an important part in this piece. And I know that you did a concert at the public theater at Joe's Pub of music that inspired this piece. Um, Music was also an important part of um, America's Hard to See. How does music... I, how do I want to ask this question? How does the influence of music affect your research and come into your process? I'm really curious because I don't know that you call these musicals, Um, you know, but music is deeply present inside your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, It's funny. Uh, When I would tell people about the gorgeous nothings and the, 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 the construct of the idea, most often, the the first question out of their mouth would be, "Oh, is it a musical?" And it was funny. I I had I don't know about a dozen people respond that way, and then finally I talked to to somebody and said, "Why does everyone want to know?" The first question about the show is, "Is it a musical?" And they say, "Because musical theater is a queer art form. It's very very queer." And to tell a story about queer people and not have music in it would just be a terrible choice. Um, it's funny that how many songs have queer undertones and overtones from the 1920s and 30s. Like if you really listen between the lines, the songs say so much about that period of time, but also about breaking the rules and not conforming to the norm and being different uh, and and being different was valued valued during the roaring 20s of course there was a, a lot of oppression once the depression hit but uh, there's something about when characters step outside of a monologue and start to sing suddenly you see that character in a brand new light and it also is the direct line from the audience member to the character to really see inside to their soul and to connect with them on an emotional level. Because once they start singing, we stop thinking about what they're saying and we start 
connecting with how they're feeling. And so that's that's why there there was live music in Gory. There was a lot of live music uh, in America's Art to See, and they would also play their own instruments uh, because it it made sense for the narrative. It also made sense that the the people on stage are completely in control of telling their story to the audience, for better or worse, as you kind of hinted earlier, that those characters might be purposefully misleading us um, and we call them out in, in several spots. The same is true for The Gorgeous Nothing, where I want, I want this to be a queer story told by queer people. And so they are in control of the narrative. And so in one moment, again, they're going to be in a scene, but it's going to flip on a dime where they start singing a song from the 20s or 30s. And all the music is going, I say that, I say that with a deep breath, all music in the show will be pulled from that era. Uh, no original music will be written for the show. Again, I say that um, slightly cringing because that's a very daunting requirement that I'm I'm putting on my my creative process. But I find that exciting. I do too. Because hopefully they're, they, those, those songs still live today and resonate with a, a modern queer audience. That's what excites me. Well, and it, it must also be difficult. You, you started this prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, doing this research, and, and you've continued working. We're recording this in late September 2020, so we're right in the middle of things. Um, but your process depends at some point of getting artists together to figure it out, right? Like, this is what the, the structured collaboration aesthetic of your work demand. So how are you finding doing this work in the pandemic and, and how has it changed maybe the trajectory of this production? Yeah, it definitely is challenging because ideally what I would love to do, and there's a way over Zoom and using technology to start, start reading this material aloud. Cause usually what happens is, you know, I sit and I spread out all the papers across the the floor in, in in my studio and then start piecing them together and come up with what I call a proposal for a scene. Then I bring that into a room and we have actors play with it and pencils are out the full time and we're rearranging things. And it's, it's not unheard of for me to bring out a pair of scissors and start cutting the script apart and rearranging it in real time. In America's Art to See, I had the actors do that where they would sit down with a pair of scissors and they rearranged um, one of the very final things. Um, in terms of how it's working now, it's it's very much in process where I have to really rethink about what my creative process is going to look like in the era of COVID. Um, so I don't know if I have a definite answer about that. I know we've talked uh, in previous conversations about what does the develop, development process of a new play look like when you can only work via Zoom? Or if you do work in a space that you have to social distance, I don't know if I have the answer to that. But we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to let it stop the art making process. I can tell you that. Uh, it just means we have to be more creative. And maybe it's, maybe there's, um, maybe there's an exciting new way to work that I, uh, I'm, I'm, going to encounter. I'm open to that as well. Well, I, I, 
find the process, as we've discussed, and as I talk with a lot of artists during this time, it is daunting to figure out the new ways to work, but I am pretty firmly certain that Travis Russ will figure it out. Uh, and it's also interesting in the context of Gorgeous Nothings to think about it because of the ways that those people found um, obstacles in meeting and in being who they were and in creating themselves. You know, they, as opposed to a uh, heterosexual artist of that time, um, these people had to be creative in totally different ways. They had to invent under the cover of night or behind closed doors in certain ways that that in some ways to me seems a parallel for what we're living through now that we uh we can't be together in the open in the way that we are used to and so we must find these new ways to do it so i'm really excited about it i uh for anyone who is curious the drama league if you're following us on our social media we will make sure you know about the eventual openings and anything that happens during the pandemic uh, that people can attend. Um, I know we're out of time and I feel like we just started talking two minutes ago, Travis. So um, it's such a joy to have you um, and to hopefully to let more people become a part of the Life Jacket Theater Company family because the work is really extraordinary. Um, where can people find out more about you and about the company? Sure. Um, they can go to our website, lifejackettheater, with an R-E, dot org. Um, you can follow us on uh, social media, lifejackettheater, NYC. And I also want to take a moment, Gabriel, to acknowledge all of the support that you've given Life Jacket over the years. Um, we really wouldn't be where we are today without you taking a chance on us uh, and giving us a home and uh, supporting our work and being a true champion. I really, really appreciate it. Well, you're quite welcome. I, I think we played a very small part in that, uh, but I know that we are um, one of a number of uh, artists and institutions who think there's something in the secret sauce of Life Jacket and, and the work that you were doing that really speaks to where we are headed as we move forward. And I, and I look forward to, to continuing that conversation with you and seeing your audiences find new ways to meet our moment and, and address our humanity. It's really beautiful. Um, Travis, thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to seeing you in person as soon as we possibly can. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 